Hi, and welcome to Creative Conversations for the Soul, the podcast that speaks to inspiring individuals and curious minds, lifting the lid on what it means to embrace true, wholehearted creativity. I'm Amber, and I'm your host. I'm a copywriter, writing mentor, and content strategist at The Wild Wordsmith, creating soulful stories for free-spirited brands. Today, I'm speaking to the fantastic Michaela Thomas. Michaela is a clinical psychologist, couples therapist, and founder of the psychology practice, The Thomas Connection, as well as a speaker and author of the book, The Lasting Connection, on developing compassion for yourself and your partner. Michaela has a special interest in perfectionism and couples compassion, having the mantra balance over burnout. I love that. She helps stressed, busy people let go of the pressure of perfection to follow their ambition without drowning in it and to strengthen their relationships. I wanted to speak to Michaela about vulnerability, compassion and our creative blockers. And let me tell you, the conversation did not disappoint. So get comfortable, pour a drink and let's begin. Hello, Michaela. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Well, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here to to reflect on a few things together with you. Oh, I'm very excited. Um, It certainly feels like a topic that I need to be talking about at the moment, because as people who are listening will see, it's about vulnerability, compassion and our creative blockers today. And Yes, they're definitely three areas that I need to spend a bit of time right now. So I'm really looking forward to this. Thank you. I always start every podcast by asking my guest what their creative goal has been for the week. So whether that's something big or something small that you've been working on. So I'd really love to know what yours is. Yeah. And when I'm thinking about that, it's natural for me to go into my business related creative goals, but I'm actually doing something outside of my business just for fun as well. So I wanted to mention both of them. Uh, partly is that I'm kind of building uh, modules, video modules into my online course at the moment, The Compassionate Couple, where I'm then videoing and writing text and kind of creating worksheets. So that's there's a lot of creativity in that for me. I can sit there and like, you know, tinker with Canva and build pretty things. And I quite enjoy that bit. But then also outside of work, I'm taking a mindful origami course at the moment to learn to facilitate mindful origami practices for others, because I, I do um, I do retreats, sort of day retreats, where I kind of combine a way of pausing and slowing down together with connecting with your purpose and what feels meaningful, uh, and then kind of finding ways to be playful and creative and having fun. So I thought mindful origami would be quite a nice thing to do with that as well. So that's kind of part of my goals this week is to fold some origami and create some video modules for my course. Oh, that sounds amazing. I am... Um... I've actually got a mindful origami set that I need to do because I've um, subscribed to, you know, the charity Mind. They have this pause box and it's just like a subscription that you get something every month. And the last one was mindful origami and I'm yet to do it. And I need to because I need some mindfulness at the moment. So, oh, I love the sound of that. That's a little bit similar to my creative goal, actually, for the week. Um, So I recently did a meditation course with... Um, my friend and yoga teacher, Lauren Gray, because I really want to start building um, sort of mind uh, meditation, sorry, practices into like my creative coaching and things like that, because I do think it's such an amazing way if you're doing a big creative project to have that moment of grounding beforehand and sort of led for a really sort of lovely sensory meditation. So 
I need to work on uh, creating a few and sending them back to her to have a little look at but yeah I've not done it yet so it's on the to-do list (laughs) well no pressure on it because then if we pressure ourselves to do it we tend to avoid it even more but just more thinking that that there's a purpose to that that will be really meaningful because if we're able to slow down and pause you know that's quite a popular buzzword at the moment but if we can press pause on things and slow down we can we're more able to step into our parasympathetic soothing system the kind of the part of the nerve system that's more about resting and digesting, you know, being calm and connected with others, feeling feeling sort of at ease and, and not really moving towards anything. We're not rushing to get stuff done on our to-do list. We're not stressed out about stuff. We're just kind of content. And often when we're in that space, it's much easier to move into our drive system, which is where playfulness, creativity, um, getting stuff done tends to happen. So this is where I often help people to kind of pause and slow down first in order to step into innovation, creativity. Otherwise, it's just like, oh, I have to do something. I have to get this done. And, you know, I'm sure we're going to get into that. That can lead to blockers as well that we're just you know writer's block or creativity block that we just can't think of something because we're too much in our threat system which is much more about our kind of fight or flights you know, where we feel anxious about doing a good job maybe fear of failure thinking it won't be good enough all of that stuff hooks us away from creativity so those three systems developed um, by Paul Gilbert within compassion focused therapy are really, really helpful to hold in mind. You know, are you in your threat system? Are you in your drive system? So are you being productive and getting stuff done? Or are you in your soothing system where you just, you're just being, you're just resting a bit. And that means that it's easier to move back into the drive when you're ready. Not easier to come up with spontaneous ideas when you're in that space. Yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness. I'm just like, the whole time you're talking, I'm like smiling and nodding because this is, <laughs> we've not even properly got started. And this is just like, yeah, this is the stuff. This is what I need to hear. It's so important because you know, I do, I get so overwhelmed when I see I have this massive to-do list and I'm constantly like, oh, but I have to get it all done. I don't have enough time for this and that and this and that. But I know that when I do take that moment to pause and I really build it into my day, I get so much more done anyway. And it just happens. Like you said, it just becomes natural. And yeah, this is just fascinating, isn't it? Mm. So to properly sort of dig into all of this, I'd love to start off by talking about a phrase that really, really jumped out to me on your website, learn to strive for excellence, not perfectionism. So I just wanted to ask what that phrase means to you and why you think that this is something we struggle with. Mm, Well, because I work with a lot of high striving personalities, people who are used to achieving things and take actually joy from achieving things. They are passionate people. They might be very inspired. They might have kind of a burning desire to, to do things in their lives. And as you can imagine, that can be people who have had a success in their lives and they've done a lot with their lives and they feel that they've got a lot to contribute or to give. In order for them to be able to direct their efforts wisely, it's okay to think about striving for an excellent result, you know, to do really well at things. There's nothing wrong with wanting to do well. But when you're striving for perfection, you're aiming for something that's unattainable because perfection doesn't exist. And that means you're spending a lot of effort, a lot of time, a lot of mental energy striving for something that is unattainable. And that means that we're we're likely to actually fail because two things happen. A, you struggle to get started, or three things actually. You struggle to get started is where procrastination comes in because you're like, it has to be this good. It has to be up to this standard. It has to be perfect. And that's very daunting. It's overwhelming. So we then don't get started. We procrastinate and put it off, put it off, put it off. You know, the procrastination and perfectionism are both on the rise. We can see that in studies that it's becoming more and more common. 
And B is that if you do actually make yourself get started, you procrastinate for so long that you spend loads of energy that when you do get started, you're almost burnt out already, you're really tired, and it's really hard to keep going. So you might give up. So then C is that you don't finish. So you don't get started, you struggle to carry on, and you struggle to finish a project because it's overwhelming and you're more likely to be burnt out because you're wasting energy on like tweaking details that don't need to be perfect. And I imagine for a lot of people who are in doing creative things, like getting too lost in the details, like I just need to do this again, or I need to unravel this thing I've done, or I need to race this thing and do it again and again and again, and then losing kind of sight of the bigger picture, which is, this is a part of one of my bigger kind of goals that I want to move towards. So moving towards excellence is absolutely fine because that means that you pride yourself in the, in the work you do, but really no, noticing that when I sometimes even go for not excellent, but actually good enough, when I go for a B minus rather than an A star, I might actually be more likely to finish the piece of work that I need to submit. And the tricky thing is that our own perception of what is A star versus B minus is really skewed. So what you think is that this is a bit crappy, I don't really want to submit this. Other people might praise you for it and think this is really good. Why why did you sit on this for so many months? So we need to get this stuff out into the world. And otherwise, you you could be sitting on a one piece of work for a very long time because you're striving for that perfection and then you don't you don't finish it, which means you're more likely mm. to fail than if you submitted a few good enough things and you actually moved forward. Absolutely. I mean I definitely can relate to that so um outside of my work I'm writing a fiction book at the moment um and I'm just over halfway through and I have hit like the biggest creative blocker because I know that there's things and it's my first draft so I know there's things I want to change and I also know that every single piece of advice going tells me just keep writing and get to the end of the first draft and then that's what the edit stage is for but because I know that there's things that don't quite feel right and I want it to be perfect. I'm really holding back. So I'm really sort of resisting pushing through. And I know that I know that you've written a book, haven't you? So I'm mm-hmm. really interested in what your experience was like of that or if because of all of this work that you do with others and on yourself, you were able to kind of let that drift away. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that I was then immune to it and, and let that drift away. It was much more about I've made myself work through it rather yeah, okay. than I didn't experience it. So, and I wrote a nonfiction book rather than fiction books so that might be slightly different. But I've I've wanted to be an author since I was little. I, kind of one of my big dreams when I was younger was to to write a book. And I've not really done any fiction things just yet. So when this opportunity came up, uh, I wanted to, to release my book, um, The Lasting Connection, which was not actually the working title I had on it. So that goes to show that it doesn't have to be perfect, yeah. the first first oh, okay. round go. I wanted to call it Let Love Flow. And then the uh, the editorial board was like, how about this? How about how about the lasting connection? Because mm. it kind of fits with your brand name, the Thomas yeah. Connection. I'm like, well, that's actually way better. So yeah, working like through a book, I've kind of said that the, you know, the, the time that took me to do, it feels like working through the faces of, of personal therapy like it's doing the inner work there because you have to sit with your own self-doubt all of these mind gremlins showing up that it won't be good enough or are people in my profession gonna think well as in the other psychologists are they gonna judge are they gonna think it's good enough because I wanted to write a book that is is non-fiction but it's aimed at the general public so I've taken away a lot of the lingo I've tried yeah. to write it in common language um so this is kind of my 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 close as close as I get to a fiction book 
and I put in vulnerability in it. I put in sections that are called my story. Uh, and they were really, really daunting for me to put in because psychologists are so trained to be like a blank slate, to be, a, uh, you know, a, a blank canvas where we don't share things about ourselves. So for me to be authentic and honest and vulnerable in the book, I think the general public responded well to because they felt like you're not just an expert on a high horse, you're an actual human who also will struggle in your relationship. But I was really worried about the psychologists kind of judging me for it. So I had to work through all of that, all my fears and all the blocks around being honest and open and obviously not making it into my personal therapy book. But still, this is how I work with couples in my therapy room because it's, the book is about strengthening you know, the couple's connection. Uh, so that was that was huge, and I had to sort of, at times, really sit down and reflect. I I used a, a book coach, which was really really helpful, because she obviously was aware of these creative blocks that would come up and give me ex- exercises to do, and I turned to my supervisors, who are obviously like mentors. And the first kind of piece of advice I was given is similar to what you said just now of just allowing yourself to write shit to begin with. Just sit down and like 20 minutes of shit. Yeah. And then at the end of that, you're like, well, I'm just going to write shit. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> so because that permission is given to not go for perfection. So I'm just going to write something. So occasionally I would then put on, I, I love the forest app uh, on my phone, which if you're not familiar with it, it basically blocks you from doing other stuff on your phone so you can start it and you can set the timer a bit and what it does is like gives you a visual graphic image of planting a tree so and that's growing the tree is growing whast you're being focused so it's a focusing app and preventing distraction it's called yeah and if you leave the app it's saying do you want to leave the app or your tree will die and you're like no 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 don't want to kill the tree and then you also get to see the end you get to see like a whole forest growing of all the all the times you have been focused in your attention. So I put that on, put some music on that, you know, quite calming sort of classical music that I like listening to. Uh and then I just think, okay, I'm going to sit here for half an hour of forest time and just write shit. And yes. you start somewhere and find, you know, one piece to flesh out. And then if that doesn't work, then that's just a draft. And I, you know, also encourage to save everything. So I used um I don't know actually if a Scrivener or Scrivener, but you know, yeah, one, of those, yeah, I know what you mean, yeah. one of those programs where you can almost like move it around like post-it notes and then nothing would be lost. Anything that I would be like, oh, that's not great or it doesn't fit here. It's still writing that you can use into a blog post or yeah. an Instagram post or whatever you want later on. It's still your words. And so then don't, don't kind of kick the drafts in the bucket, but yeah, it's, just working through and fleshing it out. So once you have your first skeleton of this is kind of the the chapter outlines, then just I just picked one chapter at a time thinking almost like here's a here's a collarbone. I'm just going to put a little bit of muscle onto that. Um, and I just visualize that image of the body and I'm just like fleshing out little bits and pieces. Yeah, uh, And that really helped because I, I like a process. I like to know what I'm doing. Uh, and that meant that some days I then allowed myself the permission to say, well, actually, I'm really stuck on the shoulder. Let's just move to the foot then. Uh, and you do something else. Uh, and that can really help you to not kind of hit on that wall when you're really blocked and lost. Um, yeah, yeah. I feel I've kind of digressed a little bit around our, our book discussion. But um, to summarize it, basically, allow yourself to get the mind gremlins, take pauses to work through them, get support from other people, especially people who are trained in it. You know, if you can afford a book coach, if you're writing, that's great. But otherwise, reach out to your community, speak to other authors who've already written before because they've been through all of this. 
and yeah, um, definitely. and that can really help. I also remember when I was really quite little, I read Stephen King's book on writing, mm. uh, kind of thinking of the the art and the the craft be behind the writing, and I found that really helpful as well. That just remembering that and just the, the little exercises you can do, um, get movement in, like move away from your laptop, do something else, go and fold some laundry, or like take the dog for a walk or wash your hair or something that's completely different but quite yeah. physical go and dance for five minutes all of these things can kind of move your mind away from the block and and help you get unstuck definitely yeah I often if I'm if I'm stuck when I'm trying to do some writing I'll just put on like some Whitney Houston or something and just do like a little kitchen dance party just to shake it all out and then I genuinely do feel better when I sit back at the desk so yeah definitely feel you on the movement side of it. So we've kind of started to talk about how to unblock these feelings, but I want to particularly talk about compassion and why compassion is such a crucial thing for yourself, you know, what it can actually then enable and unblock. Mm. Well, it's self-compassion is only part of the picture. So we think of three flows of compassion that are worth keeping in mind that are within compassion-focused therapy. And that is the flow from, of compassion from yourself to other people. So that's you caring and being kind to others. Uh, and then the second one is receiving compassion and care and kindness flowing into mm. you. So being open to be able to accept that. And the third flow is from yourself to yourself, which is self-compassion. And where we think of self-love and self-compassion, we can kind of miss the other two. And especially the middle one is really important because it might even be easier for some people to try to do something kind for themselves. Like I'm going to take a break and go and go and get some fresh air or I'm going to go and allow myself to have a warm bath after I've been sat at the computer all day. But then it might be really difficult for them to accept compassion flowing in. Like if you're really stuck with the first draft, for instance, and actually it can be really difficult to then say, ask for help. So I think that's important mm -hmm. why it's not just about that last flow. It's the, uh, the all three of them interact and all three of them can come with fears, blocks and resistances to to doing those things because of what we've been shaped by in our life. The experiences we've had can give rise to worries or fears about that. You know, if I'm kind to other people or say if I'm sharing something, helping out of, you know, a work colleague, for instance, maybe they'll take advantage. Or if I'm needing help, but I don't really want to ask for it because maybe that will make me look weak or look like I'm not capable. And that kind of feeds into you know, we're going to talk more about in a minute, I'm sure, about vulnerability as well. It's really vulnerable to ask for help. And then that last uh, flow can also be that, you know, I don't deserve this, you know, or, or conditional statements like, I need to finish all my work before I allow myself a break. That's a very common one that I hear from high strivers. It's almost yeah. like I make my break and self-care and self-compassion conditional upon having achieved first. It's almost like I can give it to myself yes. as a reward yeah. for my achievement rather than I give it to myself because I need it and I deserve it and I, I deserve to be well as much as everyone else. So very different motivations behind why we're doing things that are kind for ourselves. And compassion matters, to answer your question, it matters because it actually is associated with things like lower levels of stress and anxiety and depression and self-criticism and higher levels of self-awareness, um, being able to correct your own behavior, growth, being able to learn from your mistakes. So what we really want to focus on is fostering this attitude of self-correction rather than self-criticism. That means that we're open to learn from what we've got wrong, 
rectify it, feel the feelings of, of frustration or disappointment or whatever it might be, allowing it all in and say, no wonder you feel that way. It makes sense that you feel that way. Or other people in your position would felt the same thing. That's compassion and understanding. We have a common humanity that we share with other people because we're all human. So we share a lot of things in common with other humans, even though you and I are very different. No doubt we'll be shaped by different life experiences. We have mm. different sets of beliefs and, and cognitions playing up for us when we sit down to write, for instance, we are still kind of joined by having a common humanity. And compassion means that we have an awareness of that, that we all are human, that we all struggle. We all have times when we're suffering. And that can be hard to think about when you're sitting kind of, especially if you do something creative that you might be sitting on your own with and like, oh, yeah. it's just me who's having such a hard time with this. Look at that author who's just published her book today and looks awesome. Like, I bet she didn't doubt herself like yeah. I'm doing. Um, <laughs> all of these mind grabbers that come in, that's our, our inner critical voice that tells us off for things, that gives us a hard time for the things we feel that we get wrong. And we get really convinced that what it says is true and that nobody else has the same thing. But again, that's very universal. Most of us have an inner critical voice that tells us off. So Compassion starts with that reality check that life is hard for all of us and we all struggle. And part of being human means that we have a tricky, weird brain that gets, <laughs> gets us into tricky stuff. Like even a psychologist can sit and write a book and have mind gremlins, right? So that's why it's really important to, to acknowledge that we are all human, regardless of the amount of skills you've practiced. These things will still show up and hook you sometimes because of how our brains have been shaped um, by evolution, that we will have almost like getting really caught between what our thinking brain is telling us and then what our emotional brain, which is deeper mm -hmm. inside the head, is making us feel. So we yeah. can say stuff like, well, you know you deserve compassion. You know you're good enough. You know your first draft will be fine and other people won't laugh at it. But then we can feel as if we're going to be humiliated. Yes, right, absolutely. So it's a mismatch between what we logically think and what we emotionally might feel or fear is going to happen and because fear isn't logical. It's not based in the same part of the brain. So for us humans, that's super tricky because those two parts don't communicate that very well. So compassion helps us to train the brain to, to do that, to help us speak to the different parts of the brain where we're saying, well, no wonder that you're feeling fearful right now, even though people around you are reassuring you that the first draft is going to be fine if we're using that example but I'm still going to be worried because I've experienced judgment in the past or it's really important to me to do well so I still feel worried or fearful of fa failure so it doesn't have to be logical for us to show ourselves compassion for it does that make sense yeah, yeah. that makes complete sense and actually it leads on perfectly to something that I wanted to ask as well because that's you know I hear that and that makes total sense. It sounds amazing. Putting it into practice is difficult for me. So I would love to know a bit more about how you do sort of work with your clients and put that into practice and, you know, for your therapy, your workshops, your retreats. I know you've got a, a very specific framework that you use with your clients as well. So yeah, I would just love to know a bit more about how we take that concept, which clearly makes so much sense and actually bring it sort of to life within ourselves. Yeah, and I think that we start with that reality check there again, with how hard it is to practice. That mm -hmm. sometimes when I do compassion exercises, I do it. You know, I do an exercise focused on how hard it is to just start a compassion exercise. So 
it's a bit meta, but it's it's because that's where we that's where what we're facing. That you know, all of us have different journeys into this. Where some of us have been shown more love and care and support growing up, so it's more modelled to us, more internalised as an inner dialogue to be kinder to ourselves. Whereas others have faced hardship. There might even be abuse or you know negative experiences as a child that might even have been traumatic. And as, of course, then the starting, like the landing strip is way longer for people like that. And as you can imagine, working with, with personal therapy and coaching, that I might I mean, see a whole host of people, some people who feel that they've come from a very loving, supportive background, and then thinking, being really hard on themselves, like, why is this difficult for me? I was given everything I needed, and still I struggle to be kind to myself. What's that about? And again, being compassionate that that's okay too. We all have an inner critical voice, even if you've been given everything in life or you're kind of sitting here feeling bad about your privilege versus people who've not been privileged, who've had a really difficult start in life and been, you know, maybe really low socioeconomic status, struggled for money, witnessed abuse or alcohol, things like that. Actually, that's then really difficult traumatic experiences make us then more vulnerable for mental health problems as an adult everything from addiction to anxiety. So again, that's a compassion reality check as well. Like, you know, that was not your fault. The things that happened to you in your life so early on were beyond your control. That was not your choosing. And that's shaped you and affected you in, in your life. So in therapy, we then start to lay the pieces of those puzzle, you know, the puzzle pieces out by thinking what has shaped you, what early experiences you've had, what kind of beliefs has that given rise to you within you, things you're fearful of, the beliefs you have about yourself, about the world, about other people. And what have you been doing too much of or not enough of as a response to those beliefs? You know, those are your strategies to keep safe, the things you do to avoid further harm. And some of them might be quite great, like, you know, doing well in school, applying yourself to come to a place where your parents weren't able to be and perhaps feeling like I'm going to move out of, of this hardship. But some of them might be less helpful, like striving for perfection rather than excellence, and they may have unintended consequences. So that's the last piece of that puzzle, the, the kind of early experiences, the fears or beliefs, the strategies you use to keep safe, and then the unintended consequences or drawbacks to those strategies. And working with that in therapy helps us then understand why it's so bloody hard to put this into practice. That yeah. If I just say to people some of the things you see as affirmations on Instagram, like, you know, love yourself. A lot of my clients would be like, uh, yeah, no, just no, I can't do that. So we don't start there. I don't ever say to people kind of trite or patronizing comments like just love yourself um, because it's it's almost like saying to someone, just speak fluent French tomorrow. Hmm. And like I can't because it's a foreign language to me. Um, and most people don't have fierce blocks and resistances to learning French. They might not say, I don't deserve to learn French. I don't, I'm not good enough um, for, for being able to, to, you know, have French words in my mouth. But those things show up for us about compassion. So we have to start with that kind of formulating those pieces of the puzzle of saying, well, no wonder that it's really difficult for you to do caring, kind things for yourself because this stuff shows up and hooks you away from it. So that's where we kind of think about starting with understanding it. And then we practice slowly, slowly, slowly start small and then build up from there. So it might be that we almost like practicing tolerating um, hot water, like you're getting into a bathtub 
bathtub that's a little bit warm. After a little while, you get used to the heat, right? It's a bit like that, that we then almost like do exposure to this. It might be that you start by visualizing things internally in a place where it's safe, like in your own brain, where you're either giving compassion to others or you're receiving it from others or you're giving it to yourself. And we use different visual characters to do that. We develop kind of a compassionate version of you, that kind of you on a really good day and practice that to step into that version of you on purpose so that you become more embodied into it, almost like a character in, in a play or a, a TV show, like the actor steps into that role and starts to embody it and feel, I feel like my, obviously people can't see me, but my shoulders are coming back and down and sort of sitting more upright in my posture, chin up and sort of feeling more like I'm strong, courageous and kind. And so having that work with the body is really, really important as well. So it's not just a paper exercise, but you step into this. So we practice it first within your head and then we practice it with your body and then we practice it into your real life. Now, what mm. would you do if you've stepped into your compassionate self? What could you be doing more of or less of in your life? Might it be that you smile to the receptionist at work if we're thinking about compassion flowing out rather than grumpily storming past <laughs> because you're stressed? You'd be like, hi, good morning. That could be like a small step of what would your compassionate self do? And then we do another thing, which is developing an inner mentor, like an, an image of something, a being that you have alongside you, like an inner coach that you have with you that can support you through hard times. That can be kind of almost like a, a counterbalance to the inner tormentor, which is your inner critic. So that inner mentor is, you can look in whatever way you want. This is where the creatives might really like this, this section because you can yeah. conjure up wherever you want. Like some people pick something like old and wise, like Gandalf or Yoda. <laughs> and some people pick something that's like young and feisty, like little Mai from the Moomins. And you can just pick oh, anything you want yeah. to have like along, alongside you to, to encourage you and support you in hard times. Like when I'm sitting there writing that book, in a mentor would say you've got this and you know I know it's really hard I know all this stuff is showing up for you you're doubting yourself and this is understandable given what you've been through but I think you've got this and you know pointing to my courage pointing to my strength pointing to my ability so this is what we do visually inside our heads in therapy until it feels safe enough to bring it bring it out into the real world and we use a lot of body work and breath work so to get the kind of into that soothing state that I mentioned, we use a soothing yeah. breathing rhythm where you slow down your breath enough to activate that sense of feeling safe, calm and connected. So that's a little flavor. There's a lot more to Amazing. it. We do everything from yeah. compassionate letter writing to practicing things, uh, compassionate actions that we take every day. So there's lots of stuff that you can do, but it's a very slow and gradual process. And it's not something that you comes from just just love yourself first um, stuff on Instagram. If you feel like, oh, that grates on you, it's because it's probably not easy to do. No, it's, I think actually that posts like that are quite damaging. I think that it's not as easy as that for the majority of people. And then people will see that and think, but why can't I? Why can't I just love myself? So yeah, yeah it's a lot of work that needs to be put in, but that all just sounds incredible. And you're clearly just fantastic at what you do and I suppose you get a lot of feedback from your clients what kind of things once they've done you know gone through this process with you what are the biggest things that come out of it for them that and maybe some of the unexpected things that they didn't quite anticipate feeling mm. or doing afterwards it can be very concrete actions like everything from daring to to wear bright colors in your wardrobe instead of wearing like gray you might then say actually 
I'm going to wear something really bright uh, and, you know, I'm going to swear now, but I call it fucking fuchsia. You know, if you're wearing the color of fuchsia, yes. which is one of those things that's actually really strong and kind yes. of brings a pop. Uh, and just thinking of that, I'm letting go of some of those preconceived notions. I'm letting go of what's holding me back and I'm, I'm stepping into that kind of liberation, if you may. So that, that kind of liberation of freedom is one of the most common things I hear that people say, I feel liberated now to choose what I want to do rather than feeling trapped by what they've perceived that other people will think or not letting other people's judgment guide their decisions. So that can lead into anything from quitting a job or going for that promotion that they previously were holding themselves back from or, you know, asking someone out that they fancied to ending a marriage that was abusive, um, yeah. moving back, moving to a different country, um, all of these kind of big life decisions that they were previously holding themselves back from or not doing. And moving from maybe working 60, 70, 80 hours a week into cutting it down to 40 or working part time, spending more time with the kids and their family, taking up an exercise regime and looking at healthy eating and nutrition that isn't about being punitive, but more like, actually, I'm going to feed my body good food. I'm going to choose to move my body because it feels really good when I do rather than I'm going to go on a diet and burn off calories on the treadmill. Yeah. So just a very different motivation to why they choose to do what they do. So that's the feedback I often get. It's the end that I feel liberated. I'm not choosing more wisely. I'm choosing things that are kind of nourishing for me rather than punishing for me. Amazing. Yeah. I feel really strongly about the just sort of going back to the point about choosing to eat and move in a way for different motivations. I feel so strongly about that. And I, you know, it was a few years ago for me now that I had that change into a more positive reason for eating in a way that would nourish my body and moving in a way that would actually nourish my mind. And I feel like my life just changed when I had that mindset switch and I wasn't doing it as a way to almost punish myself. And mm. yeah, I just feel very, very strongly about that. And I think for me that that came back to being, you know, at the time when I did used to do it in a more negative way, I was also in a very vulnerable place in my life. And I wanted to, for us to talk about vulnerability because that is a really big part of what you do. And women in particular, I believe that women find it harder to allow themselves to be vulnerable, you know, whether that's right or wrong. I think I'm sure you'll, you know, we'll talk about that. But, you know, and I think especially with creatives, there's such a big amount of vulnerability that comes from committing to a creative practice. And we've already talked about that in terms of using like the book example. But yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that whole sphere of vulnerability. Mm. It's a tricky one. I mean, there's a great book by Tara Moore called Playing Big that if people haven't heard about it, it's actually smuggling in things that we talk about in compassion-focused therapy as well, like the inner critic and the inner mentor. But it's a tricky one because I really don't want to be dogmatic here and, and feed into gender stereotypes. I think it's hard for men and women to be vulnerable for very different reasons. Uh -huh. There's a lot of stigma and stereotypes in society that men have to be strong and that men aren't allowed to show weakness. And we see that in kind of blocks to compassion where they may not ask for help and support. And we know that, you know, one of the biggest reasons for for, for death of males in kind of the same age as you and I are is suicide. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's yeah, actually more, that's, that's the most likely reason that they will, they will perish. And that is because of not if being open and vulnerable and um, I guess, 
accepting that help flowing in. So that that can be really difficult around men's mental health. But women playing big, women stepping out to be vulnerable is a very different reason. We kind of think about glass ceilings and we got marginalization around women. And it's really hard for women to be vulnerable because we then have that pressure to be not just as good as our male counterparts, but better. Right. And and also what happens if you speak your mind as a woman, it might come with sort of preconceived notions that, you know, woman who's outspoken is angry or hysterical uh, you know that lovely lovely term thank you freud very much for that hysterics (laughs) which comes to do with the the our uterus Uh so yeah Yeah. you know angry women are seen as hysterical instead of saying that they're assertive or have gravitas which is the stuff that we would often say about men so i really don't want to sit here and think women uh have a harder time with vulnerability than men i think it's just very very different reasons different yeah and and that's because of the societal norms that play up for men and women in different ways for the each of the constructed genders so obviously it's not about biology as such it's much more about social construction that women are often sort of painted a picture of needing to be perfect and needing to make themselves small i mean you gave the example there of having that kind of punishing motivation when we when we think of diet and exercise often that is aimed at making us smaller um physically smaller so the tricky thing when we eat healthily because we want to feed our body good nutrition and we move our bodies to get stronger, to get fitter, to have a healthy lifestyle, and that can lead to also being a different size than you were when you were punitively kind of treating yourself badly with, you know, yo-yo dieting or like fad things or starving yourself or restriction. And that can be really difficult when society then says women should be small. So stepping up and being vulnerable can be everything from, you know, posting pictures of yourself when you were a bigger size than you were when you were skinny and caught up in this kind of restrictive motivation and that could be really difficult because women are then open to judgment you know mean tweets have you, anyone yeah. has watched some kind of videos and mean tweets that's a good example so no wonder then if you are in a creative industry or you kind of using social media to promote your work it's you you're making yourself open for criticism which means that we are vulnerable we're vulnerable to threat and that yeah. means a lot of us then want to hide and in order to play big, we have to step out and step, you know, step into that arena where we might be uh, vulnerable to criticism. And that can be really, really difficult because a lot of women are socialized to please, to please others, to be malleable, to be to be a good girl. And, you know, with the work of uh, people like Glennon Doyle, her book Untamed talks about that. There's a lot of voices out there talking about women kind of daring to be less less i think was the, she was talking about analogies of cheetahs like you know how the cheetah yes. has been tamed yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's a great one and i think that really shows up for us when we try to be vulnerable as women that you know we then also get things that are very sexualized as comments for that so you know don't be a bitch or don't you know don't be a prude like whatever it might be you know don't be a i'm swearing again don't be a cocktease and stuff no, like that but... don't worry, I'm all for the flowers, so. <laughs> so i'm just hoping that nobody's like listening to this for the little ones kind of around because I've, <laughs> yeah. I've used a lot of bad words already but it's capturing reality right yeah. and this is happening all around us so then it's very easy to withdraw and not be brave and courageous and put your work out there because of the scrutiny that might come with it so then questioning yourself what is my value? What is meaningful to me? What matters to me? And going in line with that, and that might be having a contribution to the world. That might be 
uh, feeling fulfilled when I when I draw. You know, if it's thinking about creating, like if I paint and draw, I feel fulfilled, I feel joy, and I want to share that with the world. I feel I have a contribution to make. Then that means we have to tolerate the risk of rejection, tolerate the risk of criticism, but also know that we don't have to be victims to it. We don't have to be passive to it. We can also stand up with courage and strength and stand up for ourselves. We can get support from others to protect us. But I think it's just thinking that what's meaningful to me is that the painting itself, then I can't just paint all on my own and never show it to anyone. That's okay too. It's okay to paint or write for your for your desk drawer if it's the process itself that feels meaningful. But if you feel that part of this is that I need my voice to be heard by others or I need to put this out in the world, that's when we then think actually I can then do hard things in sake, you know, for the sake of being able to walk in line with this particular value that I have. Absolutely. And I'd like to know personally, what do you do on kind of a daily, weekly, monthly, whatever that might look like basis to, I suppose, keep your cup filled in all of these areas and make sure that you are sort of, yeah, I suppose, living in a way that does show yourself and others and accept compassion and allow yourself to be vulnerable. And, you know, are there any things that you have I suppose you know maybe made like a little ritual around that feel very very important to you I think as we've been talking about vulnerability I'm going to be really honest there that my practice if we think about how do I practice what I preach my practice looks quite different depending on how I'm feeling and I wish that wasn't the case but it's as much like my yoga teacher says that when she needs it the most she doesn't roll the mat out so it's a little bit like that so that's again reality yeah. check that is human it will happen even when you have the skill sets you know, I've written a book about this stuff. And yet when I struggle, I may not always show up for myself. So then I think about what can I do? You know, do what you can is a mantra that I often think of rather than like love yourself every day, do what you can. Like some days when I'm really struggling, if I'm stressed out or if I think back to my early postnatal days where, you know, you I had a baby constantly feeding on the boob or didn't sleep, you know, he would wake up like 12 times a night then to say that, oh, I was doing, you know, a, a morning ritual of squeezing ginger into hot <laughs> water or whatever, it's just yeah. completely unrealistic, right? And I hope that this is going to feel refreshing for people to listen to, that this is kind of, again, coming back to embracing imperfection, that it will not look like the social media accounts of people like, these are my daily rituals and I always do this. Well, actually, if you are a parent of a young child or if you're working on a deadline, it's really hard to do the like ideal practice. Then it's about what can I do? So I have little reminders visually in my office as I'm looking at them right now. I have a little little coaster and I'll show you, people can't see, but a little coaster that I had made that says breathe on it. Oh, I love that. Yeah, lovely. Because that means that every single time I take a sip of water, because I've got a, um, a water bottle here. Um, so hydrating is something I do on a daily basis. And it's been a real work in progress for me. Uh, and I'm just adding in like a little bit more every day until I've now got a routine where I've got this sort of clickable bottle that, you can see here, you've got a little dot here. When the, when you've finished it, you click it, and then you kind of keep track oh, of how many nice uh, you've drunk. So I've kind of gamified my water intake, basically. And I just know what works for you. For me, it works to try to do little uh, pieces at a time. So once I've kind of nailed the, the water intake, and some days I forget to drink mm-hmm. the same amount, and that's fine too. But o- overall, I know that if I can't do very much of sort of sitting down to do a seated meditation or do any of those kind of longer practices, I know that hydrating myself every day is going to help me regardless, right? So when, you, when you're when dehydrated, there's also a link between that and, and your mood. So obviously you might even feel very depressed or lethargic when you're not drinking enough. 
breathing helps us on a daily basis. If you don't breathe, you die. So it's kind of basic stuff. But it's not just having to breathe because you do that automatically. It's just slowing the breath down, taking two, three long, deep, slow, deep breaths can really help get perspective on whatever struggle you've got in front of you. So to answer your questions of what I do on a daily basis, I try to feed my, mm-hmm. my body nourishing food. Doesn't mean I don't eat pizza or, or, or kind of other stuff on top of it. I yeah. eat whatever I feel like I fancy eating, but I try to also feed my body like vegetables, good healthy fats, you know, complex carbs. I feed it, feed it good stuff. So that's kind of a, an ongoing on a monthly practice of kind of learning more about nutrition. Um, and in terms of my my kind of more kind of in the moment practices is that I use that, that inner mentor. If I'm having a hard time, I visualize her sitting right ne- next to me, holding me and just giving me the support and kindness. And because that she can be there whenever, whereas people around you aren't perfect, aren't ideal, and we'll have their own stuff. So I lean on my community. I seek help from other people practice receiving compassion flowing in by asking for help or asking to talk it through with someone and that is really powerful but when knowing that sometimes you feel shit when nobody's around then going inwards and talking to your inner compassionate team is a really helpful thing to do stepping into that and just having a conversation with yourself and like well it's no wonder that I'm feeling like this so so that's kind of a it's a bit of a range of stuff I do it's not all my therapy exercises it's a multi-pronged approach to well-being and and the, the one thing that I try to never compromise on is to try to be outside every day, uh, even if it's pissing it down with rain. You know, I've got a four-year-old, so I have to leave the house anyway um, because I've noticed that in myself I don't feel well if I haven't been outside. So going for a walk or even better if I can move into nature. But even something small like walking down to the shops, I just need a little bit of movement and a little bit of fresh air, and I try to, that tries to be kind of a non-negotiable for me. Thank you so much for being so honest about that, because this is something that I am having a hard time with at the moment. So I had quite a bad injury a couple of weeks ago, and I'm basically, I can't really do anything. I'm, and I'm a really active person. So it's, you know, even things like making a cup of tea, like basically my ankle was just smashed to pieces. So I have stopped doing any of those things that I have got into a good habit of doing, like my meditation in the morning, my journaling. And, you know, obviously there's some things like yoga. I can't do that at the moment, but I've stopped all of it. And I've been feeling so angry at myself for stopping because I know that it's going to help me. And I know that because I'm not doing those things and I'm also not hydrating myself. So that's a really, really good reminder that my mood is even worse. I'm sleeping badly and it's just becoming a vicious cycle. So I'm so grateful to hear you say especially as someone who this is, you know, this is what you help other people do. So I'm so grateful for you to say that it isn't the same every single day. And there will be days where you can't show up and yeah, sit cross-legged and meditate for 20 minutes. Like, but even if you just do something, and even if that something is maybe, you know, sitting on my balcony or making sure my water bottle's always filled up. That is still so powerful for yourself. So I'm really grateful for you sharing that. Thank you. Well, you want to do things to give you some some quick wins to get you through. It's almost like to tide you over in a rough patch and we can always return uh, back to it afterwards. So I'm going to give the listeners kind of a, a term that can be quite helpful to hold in mind when we drift away from doing things that we know are helpful for us, or we've even drifted into things that are harmful for us. So Asking yourself, how can I be helpful, not harmful to myself? is a good kind of summary of compassion. And if you find I'm really struggling to be helpful to myself right now, can you just ask yourself, 
can at least not be harmful? Can at least not add insult to injury here? Can I at least not beat myself up? And I, can I, were you sharing there very vulnerability is that you are hard on yourself and feel so angry with myself for almost like letting myself yeah. down, but actually then tapping into that, that this is normal, this is common, we will drift away. The term to use is gentle returns, right? So I wish I coined this, but I didn't. It was Kelly Wilson, who's <laughs> one of the founders of acceptance, acceptance and Commitment Therapy. And he taught me this around when we drift away from acting effectively, when we drift away from being the person we want to be or following our values or taking good care of ourselves. We obviously want to try to notice that as quickly as possible. Like, oh, I actually haven't been paying attention to how much water I've been drinking for a few weeks now. And no wonder I've been feeling a bit more sluggish. That makes sense. How can I return to it? But the gentle part is really important because that means we don't come back to it like, say, you bloody idiot, you can't even drink water like a normal human being. What's wrong with you? We then say, well, no wonder you forgot about that. Your ankle has been in pieces. You've been in pain. It's completely turned your life upside down. How do I gently return? It might be that I just think about taking, you know, um, a glass of water before I sit down to have my breakfast. I just take a few sips of water every morning. So the first thing I do, and this is part of my ritual, if you were asking kind of what do I do? The only thing I could think of that is a ritual that happens every day, apart from like going to the toilet, (laughs) eating and brushing my teeth, which are essentials, (laughs) is that before I sit down to eat my porridge or whatever I have for my breakfast, I go into the kitchen, I fill up the water bottle and I drink some of it. So I know I've already started as I mean to go on. So that gentle return helps us to not be so hard on ourselves, not shame ourselves and blame ourselves for when we have drifted. It's just more like, well, we drift. That's just what we all of us do. It's like helium balloons. We don't blame the helium (laughs) balloon for wanting to drift away from eating the the helpful things or uh, going to bed on time instead of scrolling on Instagram. Like we all going to fall into these traps, but it's when we've noticed that, oh, okay, we'll put the phone down, walk away, and then we gently return to what we know is helpful. That feels like, to me, it's a much more human, accessible, imperfect way of treating yourself kindly and doing healthy things in your life, rather than some of this pressure that we have to, you know, to be aware of plastics and not eating toxins and choosing organic food. And like, there's so much we, quote unquote, have to do. So starting with something small, do what you can, and then layer it on from there. Most, one thing is a habit or a ritual that you won't compromise on, the layering mm-hmm. another thing. That is what we know from the research around behavioral change, around motivation for changing all things is that you can't do it all at once. It's just, it's destined to fail. It would be like a yo-yo diet. You'll fall back into old habits and then you'll feel shit. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my goodness. Well, that feels like a really beautiful place to sort of start drawing this incredible conversation to a close. I do always ask everyone at the end, because this is a podcast that's very much about creativity, what are the free creative things? And that could be a certain piece of music. It could be with, like we've mentioned with the hydration, it could be getting outside, it could be absolutely anything that you do that sort of helps fuel your creative fire. The biggest thing is for me to facilitate my own focus. So like I said, cutting out my distractions. So I do one thing at a time. You know, I've got a little candle right next to me that says one thing at a time. So reminding myself that to get my mind into focus, otherwise I won't be able to be creative if I'm spreading myself too thin. So my first tip is around looking after your capacity, doing one thing at a time and just focusing with distractions cut out as much as you can, like the forest app or headphones on or whatever. The second thing for me that works well is when I'm in a creative block, I go for a walk and I might take my phone with me to to do an audio recording 
with my own voice. Like I'd use my voice recorder and that's helped me write my entire first season of podcast episodes that turned into not being those episodes at all and then turned into a season. <laughs> I've just kept going since August, but it got me started. It unblocked me from when I was like, oh, what on earth will I talk about? And when I just, it was a half an hour walk around the woods and I created my entire first season. And it's okay to that, again, like we said with the first rough draft, it doesn't mean that that is then set in stone of what you're actually going to do, but it got me going. So second, second, second thing is then to go for creative walks, if you may, because the act of moving your feet back and forth, that bilateral stimulation of your brain can be really, really helpful. So bring a notepad or even better, like just record stuff to yourself and you listen to it later on. Because then when you're sitting down to write it, you're like, oh, what am I thinking? What am I going to do? You just listen to the voice note. The third thing for me is moving my body with something else than what I do. I mean, my my work requires a lot of brain power. I don't have to move very much in my work. So I then listen to music and dance. So I like to listen to like um, Afrobeats or dancehall music, things that's just very rhythmic. And then I just move to that and then I sit down again. So just getting a physical break of doing something other than using your creative juices and that can help unblock you. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much. For th- I feel like I've basically just had a little therapy session. This has just <laughs> been absolutely fascinating. And I'm so, so grateful that you've taken the time to have this conversation with me. I am sure that everyone listening is just going to be blown away by everything that you've talked about. And yeah, I'm just incredibly, incredibly grateful. So thank you very, very much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great to talk it through. Absolutely. Thank you. Wow. I haven't stopped thinking about this conversation since we recorded it a few weeks ago. I am in awe of Michaela. I genuinely felt like I'd had a therapy session after our call. So thank you very much for that, Michaela. Much appreciated. (laughs) If you want to find out more about Michaela and her practice, you can find her on Instagram at the underscore Thomas underscore connection and Facebook at the Thomas connection as well as on her podcast, Pause, Purpose, Play with Michaela Thomas. If you like this episode, please hit follow or subscribe. And if you're feeling very generous today, maybe you could leave a little review. Your support means the world to me. Until then, stay curious and keep searching. Goodbye.